This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. This is indeed the Deep Dive, and I'm Brooke Spector, and I'm really pleased and rather honored for my guest today for our discussion, uh, Professor Zaik Sunda. Uh, is a, a man who probably doesn't need much of an introduction to South African audiences. He's an author, he's a playwright, he's a painter, he's a lover of good music, fine food. He knows a lot about beekeeping, which is something I only learned recently. Um, and he has, in his career as an educator, straddled the universe of Southern Africa and Midwestern America, where he has taught at Ohio University for many years as well. And I'm amazed that somebody can manage to have all these different intellectual and personal pursuits and manage to do them well and manage to do them in a way that engenders great respect sufficiently that uh, just the other day, uh, University of the Witwatersrand gave him an honorary PhD, an honorary doctorate for his contributions uh, over the years to letters, to culture, to the arts. Zeke, it's a real pleasure to have you with us this morning. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Brooks. I look forward to our conversation. One of the things, I mean, I've met a lot of people who have been in or have managed to be creative and work in two different universes, whether it's the United States, country X, or whether it's South Africa and the United States or whatever it might be. What do you find most interesting or confounding or rewarding or puzzling about the way in which you must interpret America to people in South Africa and Southern Africa, and the way you have to interpret Africa to Americans at Ohio University. How does this work for you, sir? Well, you know, for me, really, both worlds have merged and have, have become one. Sometimes I forget where I am. I would be talking with somebody here, and I would mention our neighbors to the north. Immediately, they would think of Zimbabwe, whereas I was thinking of Canada. You see, because you'll find that uh, unless I become present, in other words, as far as my mind is concerned, I often do not know whether I'm in Ohio or in Johannesburg. The reason is simply that when I'm in Ohio, even when I'm in Ohio, I live a South African life. I participate in South African conversations. I eat South African food. I interact for most of the time, besides when I interact with, with, with my students, with people from South Africa or from Africa and from other parts of the world. And it is the same, in fact, when I'm here, you see. So to me, that world has just become one, really. I understand that the idea that you are floating between two parts of the of, of the globe, I mean, I, I sometimes feel the same kind of problem. I, I'm having a conversation with somebody in the United States about American political developments, and then two minutes later, I'm, I'm in a discussion locally about Southern Africa or even uh, Eastern Europe, but I try very hard to, to remember where I am because... 
as I get older, I tend to think of myself as everywhere at the same time, too. I understand this problem. Well, you see, for me, it, it does not matter. I don't even see it as a problem. I see it as an advantage. In other words, you know, I'm a citizen of, of the world. And it's not only with the United States, with Europe as well, because I spend a lot of my life in Europe. My books have been translated into more than 20 languages, most of which mm -hmm. European languages, well, also East European and Asian languages and so on. So my life, you know, is in, in all those countries where they interact with my work, be it literature, be it art, be it music, uh, and, and so on. And it does not matter to me. I mean, that's not a problem at all, in fact. It is even an advantage in that I'm able to interact, you know, with all those wells, you know, without having to think twice about it. Turn it around. The interaction between your writing and your painting does the one infuse the other, or do you manage to keep them as separate kinds of, of spheres? Well, they will only become separate kinds of, of, of spheres when they decide so. Why? Because I'm often told later when people look at my work that there is that symbiotic relationship between the art and the literature, and sometimes even the music. But in the process of creating, I'm never conscious of it, except when I go out of my way to be influenced by a specific, say, play, and to say, okay, let me paint something that draws from those characters in the play. Sometimes I do that, but it's, it, it is not that often. Art comes as itself in my imagination, and I create it without thinking of the literature and the novels and so on. But it is the, the viewer, the audience, the critics who look at it and identify a symbiotic relationship. We're talking with author, artist, thinker, educator, Zeke Simda, and I'm looking at a Zoom image of him in a studio, presumably, somewhere in a home, somewhere, citizen of the world that he is, and I see behind him is a picture of a cow, a man on a scooter, and of what appears to be a very hot sun. And for the life of me, I can't quite figure out where that might be. We are in Johannesburg, in Rosebank. That's where I'm speaking from. But those are paintings that I created um, in Athens, Ohio. And I recently brought them to Johannesburg in preparation of my exhibition, which opens on the 30th of August at the Keys at Mile, I think it's called. One of the things I, I, I noticed uh, about you is that you have an active correspondence and engagement with other artists. And sometimes you've even been known to be in a studio with them, jointly creating art. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's on the same canvas or complementary canvases, how does that work? Don't you find that your own the, own, the image that you're trying to come up with is affected by somebody else's <laughs> moment? I often do that here in Johannesburg, with the artists here in Johannesburg. I'm not sure if I would be able to do that with, with, with artists in America. Because you see, the artists I work with in Johannesburg at their studios, I don't have a studio in Johannesburg. I also sure. work at Constitution Hill. There's an artist there. 
Mahatu. And we work on the same canvas. Uh, we do what I call jam session. You know, jam session as when jazz cats come together without any pre-rehearsal. And then just play. You blow the horn, you tickle the ivories, and then something comes out of that jam session. So this kind of art that I do with these other artists, especially Mahati, works exactly like jam session. We face an empty canvas and then we start painting. We start working on it. We're speaking with Zeke Sinda, author, novelist, playwright, artist, participant in jam sessions, and many other things. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. We're speaking with Zeke Sinda, writer, novelist, playwright, artist, participant in jam sessions that bring together other artists, music at the same time, inspirations, and teacher in Athens, Ohio, and over the years in various places in South Af- Southern Africa, I guess, really. Let me ask you a little bit about Athens, Ohio. Um, I, I know it from friends uh, who were interested in Southeast Asia and then went into the area of international education, international communication. And only more recently did I realize it was a big center for people interested in Africa. What happens in your classes, which I presume are about contemporary African literature? What's the response of Americans to the to the information, to the story, to the imaginative exercise that that, uh, you bring to the class? Well, uh, you are quite correct when you say that uh, Ohio University is one of the major centers, but not only in America, you know, I would say in the world, really, for Southeast Asian studies. They have a very strong uh, department or a center, actually. It's no longer a department, it's called a center or an institute or or something like that. And then, of course, a very good African studies program as well. But I'm not connected with any of those programs because I don't teach any Africa-centric classes. I don't teach African literature or, or anything like that. I teach creative writing, how to write short stories, novels, and so on. And rarely do I have African students. Once in a while, of course, I'll have one or two African students, but in most cases, these would would be American students. And of course, the content of the course itself is the creative writing of those students, whatever they choose to write about. I would only get the opportunity to talk about Africa when there's an African student who's writing about something African in his or or her novel or or short story and so I teach fiction particularly. Over the years, I've I've read a number of of your works, but the one that I think sticks in my mind the most and is recalled most easily is an older piece, uh, The Madonna of Excelsior. Okay. Many people have mentioned that that's the novel they like most. And in fact, I think it's the only one of my novels that became a bestseller in, in South Africa. As you might be aware, I write literary fiction, and rarely does that become a bestseller. But with Madonna of Excelsior, it actually got to be in those bestseller lists. And our research showed that the majority 
other readers when we look at the demographics, where African are women, you see, and then the second group would be black women. Generally, the biggest audience for my work, actually for all my novels, are women more than, and that applies not only in South Africa, but in, in the United States and in other countries where my books have been translated, because my books have been translated into more than 20 languages. For, for listeners uh, who aren't familiar with the novel I mentioned, uh, Madonna of Excelsior, uh, it takes place in a free state town in which I, I, I'm trying to find the right way to describe this. An outbreak of interracial intimacy takes over the town. Which and, was illegal at the time. Well, yeah, uh, very much so. But it takes place anyway, and the yeah. various characters... Uh, who must respond to their urges and impulses and the way in which the town itself responds. And the only other book that really sort of plowed the same field, if you will, in, in my reading of Southern African literature, well, there were two, actually. Uh, one was an Alan Payton novel, which you'll recall, uh, Too Late to Fowler Oak. And then there's a, an early William Plumer novel, uh, Turbot Wolf, which, which also spoke to that question in a way. But um, yours was, there was humor in your book in a way which the other two do not, could not seem to find any humor, only pathos and tragedy. Well, I mean, there's always humor in my, in my work. There's humor in death, because my first novel, uh, Ways of Dying, which yeah. is about the real deaths that were happening during that period of transition in, in South Africa, of political transition, that is, you know, from the apartheid system to the present order. You will remember there was the so-called black-on-black violence and people were dying in great numbers. And that novel is set in that environment and the deaths that I write about, there are actual deaths, you know, that, that mm. I got, you know, from newspapers and from people I knew and from relatives and so on. But still, there is humor in it. And uh, I don't know how I, I managed to do that because I don't consciously inject humor. But I suppose it, all, it lies in my voice as well, which sometimes mm. be becomes sardonic and so on. When you when you put up your storyboard or your outline for yourself, you don't have a little yellow post-it that says add to say, Okay, no, no, no. <laughs> I don't. It just comes, you know, on its own automatically. Even in places that I I I, I never thought there would be there would be humor. Somebody I know who knows you and your works told me something I didn't realize, and I've known you for many years through our joint association with the Market Theatre, among other things. You are also, and have been for years, deeply involved in the raising and taking care of bees. Yes, you know, this beekeeping thing just came by accident, as many things. I, I think this is the third or fourth time I talk of accident, because, you know, the humor thing just comes, you know. Beekeeping also happened like that. I was once commissioned by a Dutch theater company, the New Amsterdam Theater Group, to write a play set in South Africa and the Netherlands, uh, because there's been a long history between the two countries. Sure. From the early days of Jean van Riebeck, days of slavery and so on. But I was not interested in writing a play about slavery and all that. I wanted to write a much more 
contemporary play in as far as the setting is concerned. So I remember that, of course, our association with the Dutch continued, especially during apartheid, when they had a very active anti-apartheid organization. There used to be many refugees from South Africa in the Netherlands, in the various towns in Amsterdam, in uh, Amersfoort, and so on. Mm -hmm. But also during that period, there were many Afrikaner, mostly of the Dutch Reformed Church, who were in the Netherlands, especially in the town of uh, Amersfoort. Mm -hmm. There's a very reputable theology university there, and many Afrikaner of the Dutch Reformed. So I thought maybe then I should write a play, you know, set there in Amersfoort. But then I heard that in the Eastern Cape, there was a woman who was a refugee there and who had some peculiar experiences that interested me. I drove to the Eastern Cape to, to find her. I did not. But I discovered a very beautiful, I mean, the Eastern Cape is very beautiful, very beautiful villages there. But what struck me there was also the poverty. Men had been retrenched. It was during that period when there were lots of retrenchments in the mines of South Africa. Many of the men there used to work in the mines. They had been retrenched. The place is very mountainous. It's not good for agriculture. So I asked myself, what can we do here in this village? And then I looked up at the mountain. The mountain was pink. It was in spring. It was pink from the flowers of the aloes and so on. So the first idea that came to me was bees. But then I knew nothing about beekeeping. On my way, as I drove back past the Free State, I bought Farmers Weekly. I don't know if that magazine is still there. There used to be a magazine for farmers here. And uh, I saw then, you know, on, the, on some of the, of the columns there, uh, classified columns, that there was a beekeeping a, a school in Walkerville. And I registered there, you see, and studied then beekeeping under the beekeepers there, the beekeepers of, uh, of Walkerville in Gauteng here. Then I went back to that village to introduce this concept of beekeeping. Fortunately, as things sometimes happen in my life, Kellogg Foundation was I mean, had money in South Africa, which had not been used, and they were going to send it back to the United States. And then this woman had read my novel, uh, The Heart of Redness, right. where I, I talk of rural development. I got connected with this woman, and they said, okay, if you apply now, before we return these funds, we are going to motivate there in America that we send them to your project. And indeed, they did so. That's how the beekeeping project started in the Eastern Cape. And then, of course, you know, the, the rest is history. The women continue to run it up to this day. And I rarely go there these days because, you know, they've got the handle of beekeeping. But once in a while, I do, I do visit that beekeeping project. So when I, when I introduce you in the future somewhere, I have to say, novelist, playwright, artist, aficionado of jazz, and fomenter of beekeeping. Exactly. <laughs> We're speaking with Zakes and Da, of course. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. 
We're speaking with author, artist, beekeeper, Zeke Sinda, teacher in Southern Africa, of course, in his past, and uh, lecturer, professor, creative writing at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, and now the holder of a, an honorary doctorate from the University of the Witwatersrand just the other day. I'm glad to see that somebody like yourself gets honored before they pass away, because too often these honors show up to people afterwards, which makes it harder for yeah. them to appreciate the honor. Grateful indeed that uh, it has happened that way. And by the way, this, this is my seventh honorary doctorate. I have quite a few from South Africa, but also from the United States as well. For instance, the Dartmouth College in the United States gave me an honorary degree in art. I'm getting used to it, but I hope I will not be blasé about it still. You know, it still means a lot to me. Well, these degrees, uh, as I understand them, uh, while they don't require that you do anything on the campus of the school on a continuing basis, but except to be available uh, as circumstances might permit, you do have to give a lecture or a, a speech. And those speeches and lectures, they, get, they give you a chance to reflect on your career and circumstances and the nature of uh, the arts and literature, in your case, uh, in the societies that you're familiar with. Do you think maybe you want to bring them all together in, in one publication at some point? Well, those lectures, by the way, are very short. You know, the, the maximum is 10 minutes. Although sometimes you may go over the 10 minutes and, but because you see, they happen during the graduation itself and the program is packed. Fortunately, you are not required to do anything, you know, for, for an honorary doctorate, except the fact that, of course, you are now an alumnus of that university. In other words, you are officially regarded as part of the alumni. That is all really. And of course, they may use your name you know, as one of our alumni is doing this or that and so on, which tends to raise the profile of that university. That's all they will ever get from you, except if you become a billionaire and decide to donate some money into it. <laughs> well, if you become a billionaire, they're going to beat a path to your doorway and they won't leave you alone till you say yes. Exactly. <laughs> yes. And there are there are people who are alum, alumni of universities who uh, who get the degree, and then when the fundraiser comes, say, "I've already given. Thank you. Please, no more. Don't come back." Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what are you working on now? Well, there was no time when I would not be working on and off until now. Now this is a time when I can say I'm not working on any. A novel at all. Uh, I decided to take a break for a couple of months from writing mm -hmm. so that uh, I focus on other things. I'm directing an animation feature film, uh, for instance, but I'm also involved um, in the production, but not, not that much, in the production of an opera that I, uh, whose libretto I wrote during the lockdown. What's it about? It's about my great, great, great baby's five or six greats mm -hmm. grandmother in the 1700s mm -hmm. um, who insisted on marrying another woman. The community had to go along with that. So I'm looking at the circumstances that led to that. 
and the consequences of that as well. Because that is that was, you know, the first recorded lesbian marriage in the 1700s in part of what later became South Africa. Who is the composer for the music? I'm working with two young composers. One is um, Montati, who's a very young woman of about 26 or 27 in Johannesburg here, who's Mm -hmm. trained as a composer, but has been working as a concert pianist, uh, Montati Masebe. She's a daughter of that famous actress called Florence Masebe. I'm sure you have heard of Florence. Another one is a composer in New York City, uh, who teaches composition at Manhattan School of Music, but is also from South Africa. He's from the Eastern Cape, from the clan about whom I'm writing, a direct descendant of those women that I'm writing about here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are the two composers. And what is his name? Ongama Mshonto. So the one composer is Muntadi Masebe, the other one, and they are both very young. They are in the, they are both 27. The, 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 the New York one is Ongama Mshonto. We are hoping, although I don't think they would like us to announce that because we are still negotiating with them, but they have shown interest. A co-production with Baxter Theatre, University of Cape Town, a School of Music, and Cape Town Opera. They are targeting a particular festival next year uh-huh. in England, yes, with that production. I do hope it will be brought to Johannesburg, too. Hopefully, you know, but usually good things like those normally end in Cape Town. There are a lot of opera likers, lovers, and appreciators in Johannesburg who are not limited to Tosca and La Boheme and Carmen Uh, and the Magic Food. I mean, there are people who are prepared to, to receive things and listen carefully and thoughtfully to work that is new. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's. I I can listen to La Boheme, you know, all the time, but I'd like to hear things that were composed after 1900 as well. Exactly. Yes. 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 Indeed. You know that. I mean, um, Cape Town has experimented a lot with with that kind of. of, of, If you think of, for instance, Okame and Ekayelicha, for instance, um, which uh, you know had a very long run in Cape Town and in Europe uh, as well. And was and, made into a film. Yes, yes. And it was made into a film. So they are used to, to that sort of experimentation. Uh, over the years, they've also uh, commissioned operas by living composers uh, in South Africa, which have, the, which have been very interesting. Uh, oh, yes. In fact, they also, about two years ago, did my novel, The Heart of Redness. At the, uh, at the Arthur Fugat Theatre, with Neom Younger as the composer. And before that, they did Ways of Dying, which they called Love and Green Onions, with Gloria Bosman as, as, as the lead. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I forget the others now. For people who aren't sure who we're speaking to, uh, this is, of course, uh, well, I'm Brooke Spector, you know that, and the voice... The other voice, of course, is Zaysen Da, novelist, playwright, painter, cross-cultural, international educator in creative writing, and initiator of beekeeping projects 
as well as the composer or the, 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 the author of operatic librettos. We're adding to your list, plus the, the seven or so honorary degrees you have from around the world. Um, right. I hope you have room on the wall for all of this. You have room on your, your wall in your house for all those certificates. Oh, I see. Well, uh, they, are, they are packed somewhere in, 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 uh, in my garage at this point. Oh, you have to put them on the wall. You have I don't to want them. to show off. You see, people are oh, he's showing off now. <laughs> well, then put them in the office at the university and then let people see them there and be, be appreciative. Unfortunately, Brooks, I no longer teach now. Um, I retired about five years ago. I'm Professor Emeritus at mm -hmm. Ohio University. I do teach in the summer, though, only in the summer at Johns Hopkins University. But in all Baltimore. those in Baltimore... But I've never been there. I teach online. I teach creative writing as well. I teach a course titled Writing the Other. You're all over the place. You do all kinds of things in many different climes and circumstances. You're a man of the 21st century. I hope I am, yes. <laughs> can, can I turn this to a more somber note just for a minute? Uh, in, in, the, in the last week or so, the country, South Africa, has lost two very important figures in the cultural world. Uh, yeah. One, of course, is actor Sindisi um, Shibangu, and the other was uh, author, poet, performance poet, uh, philosopher, uh, Don Matera. Don Matera, and yeah. I, I feel the loss personally for both because I knew them well, but we seem to be globally losing a lot of fine people in the arts. Uh, it's been a difficult couple of years, I realize. What does this say about us, that we're losing so many important figures? Well, I mean, you know, with me, I take it that we are bound to lose some of them uh, at one time or another. I mean, uh, Don Matera was, I mean, how, how, how old was he? He was 86, I believe. 86, yeah. So, um, that's bound to happen, you know, sooner or later, when you are 86. The one I'm shocked about mostly is Neti Sishawangu, because he was very, yeah. he was very he was, young and still he was had... Sporty, I, I think so. I, I just know that he, he, yeah, he, he was below 50, much, yeah. much, yeah, you know, and still had a long road ahead of him, you know, of, of creativity. True, true. And so that's the one... Well, I mean, I do feel sad for Matera too, but I'm able to accept it that well, you know, right. I'm going there too, you know, sooner or later. <laughs> so are we all, I guess. Yeah, you, you know, but let me see, I don't expect him to die at this point. He's somebody I know very well from, I mean, for many years, from the time he was a student at, 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 the, at the Market Theatre Lab, you yeah. know. And, and then, of course, she worked at my production well, not my production, really. It was Lara Foot's production of my of a play based on my novel, you know. And he was brilliant. He was brilliant. He was highly uh, uh, talented, uh, mm -hmm. you know. So it's a, it's a great loss. I mean, many people saw him, uh, I think, most recently. Well, he did television work as well. But the most yeah. astonishing thing that I ever saw him in was the uh, two-character piece that Laura Foote directed and yeah, and largely created. 
in which it was in effect a, a monologue by his character mm. for the entirety of the play. Yeah. Um, hmm. And it just, uh, the horror of the story was one thing, but the audacity of the acting was another. Exactly. That was very moved, that play was. Especially when you know the facts also. I mean, the real story. Yeah, no, it was based on a, on a true circumstance. Yes. Uh, horrific, but true. Where do we go? I, one, the, I guess the last thing I want to ask you, but I want you to think about it for just a minute. I have one more commercial that I must do. We must pay our bills. Yes, of uh, But I'm going to ask you just, you know, in a, just a minute or two, what's the future of literature in a world where people read books less and less and live their life more and more with small handheld devices in which the storyline is, you know, just a couple hundred words. Think on that for just a minute and yeah. let me do this. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. We're talking with author, novelist, playwright, poet, painter, aficionado of good music, instructor in beekeeping, uh, and teacher of creative writing around the world, uh, none other than Zakes and Da. I, I posed a question to Zakes just before we, we broke for our last uh, commercials about the future of writing in a world where increasingly people read less. Should we be worried about this? Is there something that must be done to change that trajectory? Well, you know, Brooks, I'm not worried at all. I'm not worried at all because, you see, you are talking about the future of writing, not necessarily the future of reading. I'm not worried about the future of writing because storytelling is forever. There will always be storytelling. There was storytelling from day one, and it will continue the last day, if ever that day will come. Because we are naturally storytellers. We live in stories. We are each one... Each one of us is a character in his or her own story. And we always want to narrate that, to narrate it as we saw it happen, to narrate it as we add our imagination to what we saw happen. So storytelling is forever. What will change, of course, is the medium, the channel that we use to tell those stories. As it has always been, at first, storytellers were troubadours who would travel from village to village to tell their stories. And then things changed. There was now a mass communication medium that they used to tell those. They didn't have to go physically from one village to the next, to the next. In other words, there will always be change. They had to adapt their storytelling methods to the new medium. And it is the same thing now, that of course, fewer and fewer people read books. But if you look around, your storytelling continues to thrive in various media, continues to thrive in various channels, you see, because that will happen forever. A storyteller like myself can adapt to this medium or to that one. I'll continue to, to, to write a novel, but I'll write a libretto too, and I'll produce and direct an animation film as well, mm. you, you see. For instance, one of the things I've come to teach here is digital storytelling, which is something, you know, many people have never even thought about only a few years back. But we are grappling with that now. So storytelling is forever. I don't worry. 
The book, of course, may fall by the wayside, but not yet, actually. It still has many years. But even if it ultimately falls by the wayside, that is fine. We cannot fight against progress. We would not see it as progress now because reading is, you know, is, is key to our lives in many ways. But in future, there will be other media that will replace the book. You see, there's nothing we can do about that. We can resist as much as we like, but change is going to happen. I am reminded of, I think it was Bar- the late Barney Simon who once said, the, the most basic impulse among us is when a child says, tell me a story to a parent or a teacher. Tell me a story. We've been talking with a gifted storyteller himself, Zeke Simda, this week's Deep Dive. It's been Brooke Spector with Zeke Simda. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege to share this hour with you, sir. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.